in the 30th year, in the fourth month, on the fifth day of the month, as I was among the exiles by the Chabar Canal, the heavens were open and I saw visions of God. On the fifth day of the month, it was the fifth year of the exile of King Jehoiachin, the word of the Lord came to Ezekiel the priest, the son of Buzi, in the land of the Chaldeans by the Chebar Canal, and the hand of the Lord was upon him there. As I looked, behold, a stormy wind came out of the north, and a great cloud with brightness around it, and fire flashing forth continually, and in the midst of the fire, as it were, gleaming metal. And from the midst of it came the likeness of four living creatures, and this was their appearance. They had a human likeness. But each had four faces, and each of them had four wings. Their legs were straight, and the soles of their feet were like the sole of a calf's foot, and they sparkled like burnished bronze. Under their wings, on their four sides, they had human hands, and the four had their faces and their wings thus. Their wings touched one another. Each one of them went straight forward without turning as they went. As for the likeness of their faces, each had a human face. The four had the face of a lion on the right side, the four had the face of an ox on the left side, and the four had the face of an eagle. Such were their faces, and their wings were spread out above. Each creature had two wings, each of which touched the wing of another, while two covered their bodies. And each went straight forward. Wherever the spirit would go, they went, without turning as they went. As for the likeness of the living creatures, their appearance was like burning coals of fire, like the appearance of torches moving to and fro among the living creatures. And the fire was bright, and out of the fire went forth lightning. And the living creatures darted to and fro, like the appearance of a flash of lightning. Now as I looked at the living creatures, I saw a wheel on the earth beside the living creatures, one for each of the four of them. As for the appearance of the wheels and their construction, their appearance was like the gleaming of burl. And the four had the same likeness, their appearance and construction being, as it were, a wheel within a wheel. When they went, they went in any of their four directions without turning as they went. And their rims were tall and awesome. And the rims, were all, and the rims of all four were full of eyes all around. And when the living creatures went, the wheels went beside them. And when the living creatures rose from the earth, the wheels rose. Wherever the Spirit wanted to go, they went, and the wheels rose along with them, for the Spirit of the living creatures was in the wheels. When those went, these went, and when those stood, these stood, and when those rose from the earth, the wheels rose along with them, for the Spirit of the living creatures was in the wheels. Over the heads of the living creatures there was the likeness of an expanse, shining like awe-inspiring crystal spread out above their heads. And under the expanse, their wings were stretched out straight, one toward another, and each creature had two wings covering its body. And when they went, I heard the sound of their wings like the sound of many waters, 
like the sound of the Almighty, a sound of tumult, like the sound of an army. When they stood still, they let down their wings, and there came a voice from above the expanse over their heads. When they stood still, they let down their wings, and above the expanse over their heads there was the likeness of a throne, in appearance like sapphire, and seated above the likeness of a throne was a likeness with a human appearance. And upward from what had the appearance of his waist, I saw, as it were, gleaming metal, like the appearance of fire enclosed all around. And downward from what had the appearance of his waist, I saw, as it were, the appearance of fire, and there was a brightness around him. Like the appearance of the bow that is in the cloud on the day of rain, so was the appearance of the brightness all around. Such was the appearance of the likeness of the glory of the Lord. And when I saw it, I fell on my face, and I heard the voice of one speaking. Many messages that I've given are twofold in their structure. Today is, is exactly in that pattern. We're going to look at two elements, really two halves. Uh, perhaps if you've seen maybe an old show, sometimes there's a title, and then they have the word or, and then another title. That's a little bit of a traditional way of naming stories. Today, we're not really contrasting between these two things, but rather we're going to set up a pillar and then another pillar, and then at the top, we're going to see how they're joined together to form this wonderful pinnacle of an aspect, one tiny aspect of the person of Jesus Christ. The Son of God is illimitable. He's unexhaustible. You cannot search out all who he is, being both God and man. Even if he was just God alone and never took on flesh, he still would be infinite in his glory. But we understand that Jesus Christ, as we confessed in the creed today when we recited it, the historic faith that Jesus Christ is fully God, fully man, true God from true God, light from light. And yet we know that he came and dwelt among us, taking on the form of a servant. And so we're going to see some examples, and we're continuing in a, not really a series, but just a pattern of the last few weeks within the last month of looking at these encounters where a prophet or the people of God have a vision or an experience with God, which demonstrates true worship. And then from these visions, what we're going to see is that Jesus Christ is the one who goes to a place where we cannot go to behold God. And through Jesus Christ's ministry, person, and uh, existence, we understand who the Father is. Jesus came to reveal the Father. It was his mission and his job, not just to pay for your sins on a cross, but also to demonstrate the heart of the Father, a Father who is holy. At the beginning of Jesus' prayer, when he teaches his disciples to pray, he says, Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. The revelation that Jesus Christ wants to demonstrate or to give us of the Father is that he is a holy Father. And in understanding these worship encounters and also who Jesus Christ is in revealing this Holy One, we see something that is just totally beautiful about who Jesus Christ is on your behalf, on my behalf. Without him doing this function that we're going to explore today, we would have no revelation of who God is. And so we're going to peer into, after looking at some of these examples of these holy revelatory encounters, we're then going to peer into the very nature of God himself in his eternality and the relationship between the Father and the Son. Now, that's a very big goal to do in 30 minutes, but I trust that you've been trained 
and you have laced your shoes and we're ready to do some jogging. So we're going to start out and we're just going to, we're going to go for it. So I beg that you would give you, uh, give my, uh, give you, give me your whole attention and also engage your mind as we talk about these encounters. We're going to review quickly uh, about Moses. We're going to talk about Isaiah, what happens to him. We're going to very briefly detail. We're not even going to touch on every idea within this chapter of Ezekiel 1. We're just going to skim really quickly. And then we're going to look at who Jesus Christ is revealed in John chapter 1. We've spoke on John 1 before, but I, I thought it was helpful just to tie these two together because I saw something recently that kind of left me undone. And I, I, I want to convey that to you. I want you to encounter God's holiness in this way. It's my desire that you would move beyond the the menial kind of trivial things that that focus that you that you often focus your lives around. I know this is my desire for me. In 1 Corinthians 3 3, Paul is you know kind of judging or or condemning the not condemning, but uh, chastising the Corinthians for walking as mere men. You are not supposed to walk around like the average human. You are supposed to be caught up with the things of God, and such to the degree that you would begin to display them, his grace, his love, his holiness to the people around you. So we're going to look at these passages, then we're going to see something about Jesus Christ that is breathtaking. And um, so let's get into it. So two weeks ago, we had talked about Moses at Sinai as the pattern of true worship. Moses goes up to the mountain after God descends on it with fire. And we saw how that was an indication that men do not approach God as they wish, but rather God comes and calls men to himself. And so Moses goes up after hearing the call, God tells him to bring Nadab, Abihu, and Aaron and ascend. And then also at one point, bring the elders. They ascend, but before they ascend, there's a pattern of worship that's demonstrated. Moses speaks to the people, and then he goes up with the elders of Israel. They behold God, and we looked at how it culminated with them eating and drinking. They have this meal together in the presence of God in, the, in a representative sample or, or a representation of the true heavenly tabernacle that God brought with him as he descended on Sinai in fire and in smoke. And so these images begin to repeat over and over again. There's a quaking, the earthquake, or the, the mountain earthquakes, it buckles under the weighty glory of Jehovah. Yahweh, as he comes and rests upon the mountain. It says in the prophets that the mountains melt like wax in the presence of the Lord. Why? We, we gave the illustration of a bucket of water and imagining dropping a brick into that bucket. What happens as the brick hits the water is the water moves out of the way because the brick is more powerful. This is what's happening in a physical picture of this mountain trembling under the weight of the Almighty. And so the mountain catches fire, there's smoke, there's cloud, there's glory, there's shouting, there's a trumpet, which at one point is blaring, and we begin to see a revelation of the holiness of God. Moses goes from there to receive the law, but here he spends a week in the presence of God, demonstrating that God is doing some new creative thing. He's, he's forming a people through the giving of the law, and Moses is encountering this in God's presence. Moses, as he comes down off of the mountain, his face shines. Perhaps you remember this story. His face shines, and rather than being attracted to that wonderful mystery, that miracle that they were seeing at that moment, the Israelites were fearful of him, and they wanted him to veil his face 
such that they would not be reminded of the purity which one is brought into upon seeing God. So Moses veils his face, but he, he spends a whole week in the presence of God and receives the law and brings it down. Moses, upon being told to lead forth Israel from Mount Sinai, they've, they've been at Mount Sinai for many, many months. They, he was there initially for a few days, then a week. He then fasts for 40 days. He doesn't come down. The Israelites get impatient. They make golden calves. You perhaps remember the story. Moses shatters the law because Israel has already broken the law. And then God makes a new set through the hands of Moses. And then God says, you've been here too long. It's time for you to journey. It's time for you to go. And, and this gives us kind of a reminder that we must move beyond heavenly mountaintop experiences and export it. And Moses, before going up, pleads with God. He says, if you are going to send us forth from here, we will not go unless you go with us. He says, we, we can't go. How would we be distinguished from the other nations? Apparently, in Moses' mind, the law itself was not enough, but rather they needed the presence of God to dwell in their midst. And so Moses intercedes with Yahweh, and he says, if you do not go with us, we don't want to know. And then he says, God says, I'll go with you. And Moses responds very boldly, wonderful, wonderful, zealous, bold faith. He then says, okay, now that you're going with, me, with us, I want you to show me your glory. As if Moses hasn't encountered this before. As if the smoke and the cloud and the fire and the earthquakes and the voices and the trumpet and the finger of God writing upon tablets of stone, as if that wasn't God's glory, Moses asks, show me your glory. Moses has taken a journey into an encounter with God, and he's been anointed such that his face is shining. He's been designated to lead the people of Israel. And even after all these revelatory encounters, Moses desires to know the heart of God even still deeper. This is a true sign of holy encounters. If you ever are beginning to seek after God and you're wondering if it's bearing fruit, the one simple test is, do you want to see God more? If you want to see God more, if that's, if that's an active appetite in your life, you have a lot to not worry about. If you don't have any concern, if you're just okay with your revelation of God now, if you're just okay with your current actual reality, apart from your head knowledge, but your experiential reality, how near your heart is to the Lord, how inclined you are to God's word, if, if you're complacent with that, if, that's, if just where you're at is okay, then you should be worried. But if you're hungry, take courage. Because Moses asks to see God's glory, and then something happens to Moses, which is terribly beautiful. Exodus 33, 19 and 20, he said, I will make all my goodness pass before you, and will proclaim before you my name, the Lord. And I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious, and will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. But, he said, you cannot see my face, for man shall not see me and live. Wait a second, I thought earlier it said they beheld God and ate and drank. In some way, the beholding that Moses and his fellows had was a glory-filled beholding, such that the manifestation of God's glory clouded his person in such a way that Moses was able to have fellowship with God and yet not be consumed. And Moses, being very bold, asks to see the glory of God, and God says to Moses, 
if you see my face, you'll die. And so Moses is asking for a thing which we could only consider with reverence and fear as we slowly take steps into this reality. This is like a child perhaps walking in their grandparents' china room very slowly, only with permission. And here Moses is very, very bold and says, show me your glory. God says, okay, but I'm going to protect you as I pass by you. This isn't going to be a face-to-face encounter whereby Moses beholds God truly as he is, but rather God's glory itself, the thing which clouds God's person or surrounds God's person, the manifestation of his goodness, such that people are not consumed as that passes by Moses. Verse 21 through 23, And the Lord said, Behold, there is a place by me where you shall stand on the rock. And while my glory passes by you, I will put you in a cleft of the rock, and I will cover you by my hand until I have passed by. Paul in 1 Corinthians says that the rock which followed them around in the desert was Jesus Christ. And Christian interpretation of this passage has always maintained that Moses is hiding in the cleft of the rock, just as Hebrews says, we are entering into Christ in order to find refuge. It's, it's like the ark that Noah went into. We enter into Jesus Christ in order to survive the wrath that should come if we would be outside him and encountering God. And so Moses is protected. Yahweh says, I will put you and I will cover you with my hand until I have passed by. Then I will take away my hand and you shall see my back, but my face shall not be seen. This is amazing. If Moses should see the face of God, he would fall down dead. He would be consumed in the encounter itself. This is amazing. So we move from this mountain and we go to the sea and Israel enters the land. And we know the story quite well. She runs away from Yahweh. She plays the harlot. She begins to worship other gods. She forgets the revelation of her leaders in the past. And because of this idolatry, because of this worship of false gods, God judges Israel in order that he would chastise her such that she would come back to him. The judgments of God are righteous and true. And because of this, we know that God's heart of mercy is in the midst of every judgment. And so God brings a nation, the Babylonians, to come and to oppress Israel and to take her out of the land. Because God said, as we saw three weeks ago in Deuteronomy, it is because of all these things that the nations which are being dispossessed from the land have done. So you should not be like any of them going after other gods. They did not heed the warning and they're judged and they're taken out of the land. A representative sample goes to Babylon. Some stay behind, although no major cities, not a, not a lot are staying behind. Many, many are, are oppressed. Many die in, in the fighting they're captive, and they go to Babylon. And before this captive, uh, before this host is led captive, God gives a warning to Isaiah, and He's giving this warning both to Isaiah individually, and then Isaiah is going to be sent not only to Israel but also to Judah and also to the surrounding nations. One of the many aspects of of the major prophets is that they're not exclusively prophesying just to Israel. Many times you'll see them say a prophecy concerning either the king of Tyre or Sidon or Moab or Ammon. And so they're judging not only Israel, but also the surrounding nations who God 
holds as being responsible to the revelation of himself that they find within the people of Israel. Just being near Israel was enough for God to, to take up concern with how they, they were treating the Israelites or how they were living in the land. And so God here is bringing, uh, bringing mercy in the midst of his judgment in order to draw Israel back to them. And he begins to do this by forming Isaiah. God's going to warn and judge Israel through Isaiah and in preparing Isaiah for that judgment so that Isaiah would have the right context for understanding why God is so opposed to the idolatry that Israel has entered into, he begins to open Isaiah's eyes to himself. Probably the greatest gift that you could ever receive is a revelation of God. And God grants Isaiah this in mercy so that he would not only have steel in his soul, but he would have a reality with understanding who God is. Isaiah 6, 1 through 3, In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. And above him stood the seraphim, each had six wings, with two he covered his face, with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The, full, the, the whole earth is full of his glory. Now, when we see this, what Isaiah is experiencing here, and we look at the different elements of the picture, it, it begins to remind us of what we just read in Ezekiel 1. This actually takes place much before Ezekiel 1, but the, the reason we're facing, or the reason we're reviewing this is to see that Ezekiel is not this one weird guy writing off, you know, as if he wandered off into the desert for too long and started tripping out. This is what God's revelation of his throne room is over and over again. Look at Isaiah 6, 4, and the foundations of the threshold shook. Have you seen that before? The foundations of the threshold shook at the voice of him who called, and the house was filled with smoke. Isaiah sees the glory that surrounds the king, a robe which fills the temple, the temple itself being filled with smoke, reminds us exactly of what Solomon does when he ordains the temple, when he sanctifies and gets everything ready, sets it apart, and begins to pray that God's glory would fill the temple. If, if any a prayer should be answered, what a great prayer to have answered and recorded in the scriptures. Solomon prays, and immediately the glory of God descends on the temple. It fills it such that the ministers cannot even enter into the temple. They fall down on their face and they, they worship the Lord. They, they lower themselves. They bow themselves in reverence of the holiness of God. And this exact thing happens to Isaiah in this moment. He's encountering a vision or a spiritual experience gifted to him by the Holy Spirit such that he perceives the heavenly temple, the existence or the reality of the substance of the thing that is only symbolized by the outer temple. Brothers and sisters, if Solomon made a physical temple, which God did not dwell in permanently, but rather just ordained for a time, and it was filled with smoke, and the ministers could not enter there, they could not even stand, but bowed, how much more should Isaiah relate to this experience with fear and trembling? Seeing the reality of, behind the thing that is symbolized. The glory of the Lord is so awesome and full of terror that it's hard to convey. 
it really requires prayer and meditation and a searching out of these spiritual realities, these true things which we were made to experience, to know. The reason God gave us the scriptures is that we would read these and meditate upon them, and by the power of the Holy Spirit, get even a small glimpse of what happens. It's hard for me to convey the reality that Isaiah faces in this next verse in Isaiah 6-5. It's hard to understand. It requires a heart of humility, asking for a gracious gift of God that he would give us even a small taste of this. Isaiah said, woe is me, for I am lost. It's very hard to understand these words. Isaiah thinks he's going to die. Isaiah is undone. He, he is so impacted by the holiness of God that he sees the holiness of God. And then he thinks about himself for even just a moment and he realizes he cannot even stand. He can't even continue to live. He says, woe is me, for I am undone. Why? For I am a man of unclean lips. He's not even talking about anything beyond just the way that he speaks. He's not talking about idolatry or greed or lust or lethargy or envy or boastfulness of other people. Just the simple fact of the way that he speaks he says, I'm a man of unclean lips. And further than that, I dwell amongst a people of unclean lips. Those who take upon their mouths the name of God, yet don't have a reality that accords with that which they speak of. Calling yourself a Christian, saying that you are near the Lord. First John says, if anyone says that he follows Jesus, he ought to walk in a manner that Jesus walked. And so Isaiah thinks he's done. He thinks it's over because he's seen the holiness of God. Ezekiel is God's prophet right after this. There's a, a time of a few hundred years in between, and Ezekiel comes and ministers to the very same captives who are in Babylon. And Ezekiel has this vision that we read earlier, but in the midst of God judging Israel, he's reminding Ezekiel that there's going to be a restoration. And so Ezekiel, just like Isaiah, needs a preparation to understand who God is through an encounter. In the 13th year, in the fourth month, on the fifth day, as I was among the exiles by the Kebar Canal, the heavens were opened and I saw visions of God. Now, I thought that I heard a, a bunch of stuff about these living creatures and a bunch of wings and wheels within a wheel. And it seems really weird. There was some sapphires mentioned. and But at the beginning of this chapter, it says visions of God. And so Isaiah or Ezekiel is seeing something which God intends to communicate through this encounter such that Ezekiel would understand something about who God is. The word of the Lord came to Ezekiel in the land of the Chaldeans by the Kebar Canal, and the hand of the Lord was upon him. The idea here is that even though Israel has, been, has sinned and is in the midst of her judgment, God has mercy upon her and sends her prophets. Ezekiel's vision is way detailed beyond Moses and Isaiah, what they experience. There's a stormy fire of cloud, a storm that's coming from the north, speaking of uh, uh, God moving, uh, not only in the midst of judgment, but also coming to be with his people. And essentially what the main takeaway here is not that you understand all the little details of what these things symbolize, but essentially that God has four pillars, these living creatures who have wheels upon wheels, which form a movable tabernacle. Ezekiel is seeing, he's living amongst exiles, and he sees God 
come and join with his people in the midst of their exiles. That's why it says whenever they would move, the wheels also would move. And so God is coming near to these exiles, these people who do not deserve any further revelation of him. And he comes near and he prepares Ezekiel for this ministry, for this prophetic witness by showing him a little glimpse of the pre-incarnate son of God. Though we may not fully understand what these living creatures are, we can learn from how they respond to God's glory such that we see something about God. It's kind of like we, we are looking at the way someone else responded to God's glory in order to understand the glory which that thing saw. What happens? 11, verse 11, each creature had two wings, each of which touched the wing of another. You can think of phalanx soldiers who have shield lined up after shield. All joined together. Verse 12, and each went straight forward wherever the spirit would go. They went without turning as they went. Verse 13, as for the likeness of the living creatures, their appearance was like burning coals of fire. Let me just say that the living creatures do not have glory in themselves, but rather they respond to and have been created in order to mask and to protect the glory around the throne. And so God has established and made these living creatures, although some may say they're cherubim, some may say they're just other spiritual beings, heavenly beings that we don't know their nature. These surround and protect the throne of God. And they they look upon God and they behold him and they worship. And then we see them calling back and forth to each other, both in Isaiah's passage and here. The fire was bright, and out from the fire went forth lightning. These creatures spread their wings so as not to be consumed in the glory of God. The reason they're covering their feet, the reason they're covering their face, the reason they're covering their, their front is so that they would not be consumed. Just like Moses, if these creatures should gaze at the holiness of God, they would fail. These are sinless, living creatures who did not partake in the angelic rebellion that Satan instituted. These are, these are beings with no moral defilement. They were created for this very purpose, to be around God's throne eternally. Well, not eternally, after their existence, eternally forward, but not eternal forever. But the point is, what I'm trying to convey is that they are terrified to look upon God, such that they cover their faces with their wings. Beyond the creatures, Ezekiel looks to what's in the center of the room which is a throne, verse 26, and above the expanse over their heads was the likeness of a throne in appearance like sapphire, and seated above the likeness of the throne was the likeness of a human appearance. Whoa. Isaiah said, I saw the Lord high and lifted up, seated on a throne. Ezekiel sees the exact same thing. There's a human likeness on the throne. And verse 27, and upward from what had the appearance of the waist, I saw as it were gleaming metal. We have a few people in our church who work with metal. John Bradbury is a guy who works with metal. I'm sure he can tell you wonderful stories of terrifying encounters where there was some either safety issue or whatever, just dealing with the production of molten metal. And what, I, what Ezekiel is seeing here is a man, the, the likeness of a human, who the, it, he's not you know, dealing with this molten metal or dealing with this fire. He's not suffering under these things. These things surround him. It's much different. It's not as if he's cowering in the corner, apart from some glorious encounter. The glorious encounter surrounds him. It's all focused on him. 
I believe what Ezekiel is seeing here is a pre-incarnate vision of Jesus Christ. That is the eternal son of God, though he takes on human form in his birth, is given a small glimpse, a small glimpse of him is given to Ezekiel. And this is all of what we're attempting to look at is Jesus Christ. Ezekiel has a vision of this one who he says is like a son of man who is in the center of all this activity. The brightness, the flashing fire, the shouts, the voices, the rainbow, all are centered upon him. Yet Ezekiel summarizes all of this as the glory of Yahweh. After his encounter with God, Ezekiel is left speechless. Now, just to add some levity, because we're, we're in some very serious ground, I had a cheeseburger last night. And after finishing that cheeseburger, I turned to my wife and said, man, that was awesome because it was a really good cheeseburger. I had cooked it. I had cooked it right. It was, you know, somewhat medium rare the way I like it, but it was, it had a little bit of glaze and crispiness on the outside. It was a great cheeseburger. And that, that experience of, of reveling in how great that cheeseburger lasted about 30 seconds. And then it was, okay, well, now that dinner's done, what do we do next? 30 seconds for an amazing cheeseburger. Now, I'm sure that you've seen movies or when I hear Beethoven's seventh, for example, the second movement especially, it's, it, it, it ascends you to the heights of, of you know, the creativity that God's invested in his image bearers. But the point is that after encountering great works of art, great food, great experiences, we have this moment of reflection upon the glory of the goodness of the thing that we've just seen, right? Perhaps you've experienced this. I'm sure you've experienced this. This is the way that God made us. Look at what happens to Ezekiel after having this experience. Just like Moses spent seven days upon the mountain, Isaiah says, woe is me, and is left undone. Look at what happens to Ezekiel. Verse 15 of chapter 3. This is after another series of encounters, all within the same encounter. Verse 15, I came to the exiles at Tel Abib who were dwelling by the Kebar Canal, and I sat there where they were dwelling, and I sat there overwhelmed among them seven days. For seven whole days, Ezekiel is pretty much out of his mind. Have you ever seen a cartoon where someone gets hit with a hammer, and then they do this thing, blah, 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 blah. That's what Ezekiel is experiencing for a whole week. He's undone by the holiness of God. He literally cannot contain the revelation of what he just saw, and he wasn't even physically and spiritually present in, in the throne room, but rather these were just visions of God that happened while he was sitting there. This is amazing. So, leaving the prophets, leaving these mountaintop experiences, I believe that John the gospel writer is attempting to convey something about who Jesus Christ is that shows us, and we're going to relate it to all of this, it may not seem connected right now, but it will in just a few minutes. He's, in, he's attempting to convey something about the person of Jesus Christ such that we would understand who he is and we would worship God because of his great ministry to us in this regard. The Apostle John begins his gospel with a discourse on the Word of God. The Greek term is the Logos, which just simply means uh, the essence or the ideal thing behind, behind all re other realities. We've talked about this, and in, in fact, it's on the podcast if you're interested in this idea. But the, lo the, the Logos, the Word, uh, this idea was 
established by the Platonic philosophers to convey the ideal thing behind all other things. For example, there's a pew and it has chairness, and all chairs have chairness, but there's this existential reality beyond all the chairs that you've ever seen that is pure essence of chairness. And it's, it, it's kind of a way by which they attempt to make sense of reality. And John hijacks this term, saying, you're all getting it wrong. There is not this ideal that's detached from existence as a, as a being, but rather this is the Son of God. He takes this and he incorporates it and says, all of Greek philosophy is empty and vapid. What you were trying to search for and find has come and revealed himself to us. And then he begins to speak of this one, the Logos of God. John establishes in the first verse three central statements. He does continue to make other statements, but these are three central statements. If you drop any of the one of these three, you enter into what the church has defined as heresy. We're going to look at them very quickly, and then we're going to see how this relates to what we were just hearing. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Each of these statements are set in the context of in the beginning. The words in the beginning does not relate only to the first phrase. Look, let's read it again. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Unfortunately, the way the commas are set up in this sentence here from the English Standard Version, you may be tempted to think that in the beginning only relates to the first phrase, in the beginning was the Word. But rather, it actually states in the beginning, and then that is the context for all three of these phrases. In the beginning was the Word. In the beginning, the Word was with God. In the beginning, the Word was God. This does not mean that the Word, the Logos, is becoming God or is becoming to be with God, but rather when the beginning was beginning, the Word already was, is a way to say it in modern parlance. You sound kind of silly, mostly because there's nothing else like this in our experience that even requires such language. There's nothing else in the world or in the created area, there's, there's nothing in the created area or created realm that mirrors anything of this. And so we know what John's attempting to convey about the Logos is not, it's not a created thing. Whatever it is, whoever it is, it's not a creature and it's eternal. These three statements are supremely important for us to begin to understand who this person is. The word was. The word was with God, and the word was God. Each of these statements, haven't we've said this already, are set in the context of in the beginning. So at every point, we need to say, when the beginning was, this already was true. It didn't become true, it already was true. And although we're not attempting to get into the Greek language here, rest assured, you can take it on faith and then look it up afterwards. All of these verbs are not becoming verbs. They are being verbs. They're not action verbs. They're not verbs that describe something that is going to happen or starts to happen, but rather words that describe things that are. The first statement concerns the eternal existence of the Logos or the Word. That is, before the beginning was, the Word was. Before time and creation, the Word exists. The second statement describes the Word as eternally with God. The preposition with here does not mean 
side by side. You see these bumper stickers that say coexist, right? What a, what a ridiculous idea. Human beings, in the way that God made us, don't just live solitary being next to another being next to another being. This coexistence idea is less than what community is. It, I'll tolerate you from far. I'll tolerate me over here. We'll both believe our own truths and, you know, we'll just be, we'll coexist, but we won't have any real life together. The word that John uses here, the preposition, the, the Greek word for with is not next to, it's not side by side, but rather it's face to face. Instead of the word and God next to each other, it's the word and God turned toward each other. The third proposition here, the third statement, concerns how the word is divine. John does not say that the word was a God, but rather God himself. How can God be with God, and how can the word be with God, and also the word be God? This is a holy mystery. The holy and mysterious relationship is the foundation for all of our understanding of who God is, and how he is related to us through Jesus Christ. We do not have any revelation of God apart from the word which God has spoken forth. That is the very word of God himself. When I say the word of God, I am not meaning the scriptures. Jesus Christ is not the English Standard Version printed in 2015. Be very clear about this. The word of God, when used in this phraseology, is not the Bible, but rather the eternal word of God. The Bible testifies, of course, exclusively to Jesus Christ. But when we say the word of God, we are not conflating the two terms, just as a word of caution for you. While this may not seem related to our previous discussion, it actually is extremely relevant. And I believe, I'm convinced quite clearly, or fully, that this was John's original intention when he wrote these words. He was writing to an audience he is a Hebrew writer, a first century Jew, if you will, if you want to put it in the terms from N.T. Wright. John is writing to a group of people, and he's attempting to convey a reality which must be understood in the context of all the other revelations of God. And we're going to see how it relates right here. Holy men and prophets of old, we have just seen, were terrified to look into the heavens and to even see the glory around God. The angels we saw in these passages are covering themselves so that they would be shielded, lest they glimpse too long upon the Holy One and be consumed as they look upon him. And John says here that the word of God beheld and was face to face with God. While all the visions of the throne room describe the fire that's all around Jesus Christ in John, John's revelation in Revelation 1 is described as the one who has fire in his eyes. Why does he have fire in his eyes? It's because he's beholding God. He's looking upon the Holy One of Israel, the one, the Ancient of Days, the one that we can only whisper about the outskirts of his glory. And Jesus Christ, the man and God, beholds God face to face. All these others could not even stand a vision or an encounter that was temporary. And John says, in the beginning, the word was, and the word was with, and the word was God.
That's holy. That's amazing. That Jesus Christ, the eternal Son of God, had perfect fellowship face-to-face with the Father, having no moral defect in his person, being very God of very God. He eternally stood face-to-face with, with his Father and gazed upon him. And the Father also stood face-to-face with the Son. And there is this communion and fellowship within God. And this this reality which we see being done is not done just for us. This, this idea that John is attempting to convey in John 1, it's not just for God to have this glory within himself and this relationship, but this love overflows into an existence, into a creation, into people who would bear his image. And from here, Jesus Christ steps down. Beyond this, the word has come and approached us so that we may behold the Father being united in him. Jesus, in John 1, uh, verse 14, it says that the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Brothers and sisters, Jesus Christ, the eternal Son of God, is the only one who has gazed upon God, and he has demonstrated through his ministry, through his teaching, through his spirit, who the Father is. And he wishes to bring you into that gaze. As terrifying as the language is, as holy as the topics are that we've been discussing, Jesus Christ longs for you to have relationship with the Father through him. And that's why he came. He did not simply just come to die on the cross, as if that wouldn't have been enough. But he also came to display the heart of the Father and to bring you in reconciliation to him. It's my opinion that these realities, these these doctrines which describe the nature of Jesus Christ are the most precious doctrines that we have in the Christian faith. And that these things must be understood intellectually, of course, but the knowledge of Jesus Christ as the eternal Son of God the one who was begotten from before all time, the one who had eternal fellowship with the Father. It requires a meditation such that the knowledge would transfer from head knowledge also to being heart knowledge, that it would become a reality by which you see what John's saying and you are left speechless. Not only is this God eternal, not only does he behold his Father, but he steps down. No other God does this. No other religion has any conception of anything even close to this. And beyond the supremacy of the Christian faith, this is a reality by which you are invited to have communion with the Father through Jesus Christ. That is why we are able to approach this table. That's why we are able to respond to God in faith and to boldly approach the throne because we're in Christ. And being in Christ, we can know God truly. So let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We ask you, God, that you would captivate us with the holiness of Jesus Christ. We pray, Father, that you would not only convince us of his holiness, but also, Lord, that we would begin to understand the warm and kind and gracious invitation that you give to us through your son. Father, we ask that we would meditate upon these things and that we would search them out, that we would, in in desiring to be holy, 
look upon you who are the only Holy One. God, we pray that this reality, which we know to be true in heaven, would be here on earth, that we would behold you through the word and through your spirit, that we would have true fellowship with you. God, I pray that you would bring us from the outskirts into this holy place where we desire to know you, where we desire to have fellowship with you, where our deepest delight is found in the doctrines of Jesus Christ, that, that we would search out his excellencies and his supremacy above all things. God, I pray that you would deliver me, our church, this city, from being captivated by low and trivial things, and instead that we would, in grace, aided by your spirit, informed by your word, search out your holiness. God, I thank you for the wonderful call for us as your sons and daughters to become holy, not apart from Jesus Christ, but only through Jesus Christ. Lord, I thank you for the wonderful grace which gives us confidence to approach your throne, a throne which, according to these passages, is extremely terrifying to approach unless we're in Christ. God, I pray that this reality would become true for us, that we would be every day meditating upon and beholding your goodness. In Jesus' mighty name, amen.